TRICARE. Some of you know what that means. That is the health benefits that uh, come as a, as a reservist in the Navy or in any, any one of the branches of the military. Um, that health insurance benefit has been invaluable to our family. Every year it resets in October and you have a new catastrophic cap to build up toward. And my family reaches the catastrophic cap within a couple of months, every year. While that sounds devastating, it's a, it's a fixed number. And once you hit that fixed number, everything else is, uh, everything else that's covered doesn't cost you anything. So that's a wonderful benefit and it, and it has made it so that in having two children since being on TRICARE, I haven't paid a penny to the hospitals. And, and that sounds pretty good, right? Uh, but no more beneficial was it than when we had our son Asa. We had reached our catastrophic cap and April 30th came and we were in three hospitals within 24 hospitals in 24 hours. First, Kent County, didn't pay them a dime. Went to Women and Infants, didn't pay them a dime. Went to Brigham and Women's, that was my, my wife being transferred by ambulance uh, there, didn't pay them a dime. And my son, Asa, to Boston Children's Hospital, guess what, follow the theme, didn't pay them a dime, not a dime. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of medical expenses that were covered because I was on TRICARE and I had reached my catastrophic cap. That, was, that would have been an incredible burden for our family. And instead, uh, we can look back upon that from a financial standpoint and from the Lord's mercy and grace through those days as, as a real blessing. There are benefits. That's one benefit that comes to us as as those that serve in the military. As we come to the close of Galatians chapter 5, what we want to notice this morning is that there are benefits to having a relationship with God. Now we know this, that seems very basic, but as we look at these particular passages of Scripture, it will come pretty clearly. There are three amazing benefits of this relationship with God. First of all, we'll notice in verse 24 that the controlling power of sin is broken. The controlling power of sin is broken. Now, for any of you that have struggled with sin, that's, that's all of you, right? That's all of us. For any of us that have struggled with sin, we can recognize immediately what kind of a benefit that is. Take a look beginning at verse 24, and I want for us to notice, before we truly dive into that point, something that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, does. He uses two different phrases to describe a saving relationship with God. First of all, in verse 24, he starts that verse by saying, And those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. This is a description of a saving relationship with God. And then in verse 25, he uses a different description of a saving relationship with God. It says, if we live by the Spirit. In other words, if we've been made alive by the Spirit. 
the first one speaks to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. The one who saved us is the one under whom we live and move and have our being. The one who saved us is our head, the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians. Also, you can refer to him as our king, as he is referred to elsewhere. The Lord Jesus, who purchased us with his very own blood on the cross of Calvary, is in fact our king. So a saving relationship results in us being placed under the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he describes this saving relationship in verse 24. In verse 25, he describes regeneration. He says, essentially, he doesn't say this there, it's just implied, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And those of us that were dead in our trespasses and sins and have come to know God through Jesus Christ have been made alive. If we live, if we have life through the Spirit, we are one of God's. And so he, he refers to both of these, and that, that really kind of gives us some, some good theology for us to understand what he's going about in these verses. First of all, Paul speaks of our new spiritual position through our relationship with God. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As part of our union with Jesus Christ, the controlling power of sin is broken. What does it mean, union with Christ? Those of us that have recognized ourselves to be sinners, we agree with God's word that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we recognize ourselves to be sinners and recognize that God in his glorious and redemptive love gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself willingly took on flesh, being the God-man, and willingly laid down his life as a redemption, a payment for my sin. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, something amazing takes place. The obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ during those 30-some years he lived on the earth is immediately attributed to our account. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, bearing the weight of sin and the penalty of sin, those who have trusted Christ died with him in that death that he died. We're united together with him. When he was buried, guess what? There we were, in him, buried. And when he rose again, triumphant over sin, Satan, and death, guess what? We're in him, raised from the dead. This is union. When Jesus ascended up on high to the right hand of God the Father, guess what? If we're united together with Christ because of our a saving relationship, we are united together. We're in Christ, seated there right now. Union with Christ. Because we are united together with Christ, Paul can say in verse 24... That we have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts, or its passions and desires. He uses an aorist tense. That's a one-time action. It takes place in the past. He is making a statement concerning our position. Because we have come to the saving relationship with Jesus Christ and we belong to Christ, this is a statement of fact. It's a decisive act that has happened. That the, the flesh that has bedeviled us, this flesh that has worn on us and controlled us, has been crucified. Not only the flesh itself, but its passions 
and its desires. Does it always feel, folks, like your flesh has been crucified? Does it always feel like your passions and desires have been crucified? It doesn't always feel that way. The idea is not that we will not have enticements or even that we will not cater to our sinful passions. The idea that Paul is communicating for us and that is communicated elsewhere is that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves, slaves, servants to sin. It is no longer in a position of authority over us. It has no right to rule over us. Anytime sin rules over a believer, it is by deliberate choice. Deliberate choice. It's easy for us to say things like, I didn't think before I... I didn't think before I... Just, just be honest, sit, sitting there as you are as a human and you have some knowledge of, of how things work. Can you do anything without thinking? There are reflexes, right? So, someone throws something at you and you knock it out of the way. Like you, you, there's no thought. You, you have muscle memory there. But when it comes to your, your actions and your words, that is not reflexive. What we can say is, I didn't think enough. I didn't consider enough. Anytime sin rules over us is because we have placed ourselves back under its slavish dominion. R.C. Trench uh, made some comments about, about this verse of Scripture that I think are just a, a little bit helpful. As, he, as, he comes to, as we come to the end of the verse where it talks about passions and desires, um, Trench lets us know that passions and desires, um, the 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 passions speak more of the passive element of our um, of evil desire, and desires expresses the active side. So passions are those things that come upon us from our own heart, but they're, they're, they arrive more passively, and then the, the resulting action of, of desires is the active side. You know, but let's, let's not be fooled. We all know, all of us know, that there are certain elements of sin that we enjoy. It's true, isn't it? The testimony of Moses from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25. Remember, it talks about by faith, by faith, by faith. When it comes to Moses, the second part of it, first it was, uh, he didn't... Um, he, he, didn't, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, okay? But then in verse 25, it says this, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We all know that sin is something that our flesh enjoys. In Galatians 5, he's telling us because of our vibrant, our vital relationship with Jesus Christ, now we belong to him, our flesh has been crucified with his passions and desires. How does that flesh its way out? Uh, I think here's a, a key to understanding this. Because of our union with Christ, there is a result 
It results in producing great dissatisfaction with passions that once greatly pleased us. Try to understand that, please. Our union with Christ results in producing great dissatisfaction with passions that once greatly pleased us. We're going to just use sin X. Okay? That's a variable. That means whatever this sin is. Before our salvation, we would involve ourselves in sin X and probably enjoy it very much. And then try to find a way to do sin X Again, we would probably orchestrate our lives around doing this thing again. As a believer, we may do sin X. That, that sin X may come up in our lives. And while sin X is going on, there may be some pleasure in sin X. But immediately, immediately upon completion, that feeling of despair comes over us and we think what am I doing what is going on why do I do what I know is going to bring about this absolute repulsion you see we used to enjoy it and now that enjoyment has turned to dissatisfaction other than the very momentary involvement in it the reason folks is this our flesh has been crucified with its passions and desires that no longer will give us a satisfaction that we have a, a, a way we're going to design a way to get back to this. This is because of a vital life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. The controlling power of sin is broken. That doesn't mean we don't sin. It means we don't have to sin, and when we sin, we do not take delight in the sin. We actually take great disgust toward the sin, which results in what we look at in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful, it means every time, and just, that means he has a right to, to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a repentance within us because we recognize this is not my way. This is not the way that God has, has designed for me. This is not where I'm going to find true, lasting satisfaction. This is actually going to push me away from the only thing that satisfies my heart because it pushes me away from God himself. That's a benefit. That's a benefit of, of a relationship with God. Because while someone may enjoy whatever this sin is, ultimately it will not accomplish for them what they are looking for. They will never get enough of it. They'll never have the peace and the joy and the harmony that is intended for the human soul without God himself occupying their being. This is a benefit that we have of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ Secondly, the controlling power of the Spirit is available. There's not just an absence, there is a presence. There's not just a removal, there is a filling. God doesn't just simply take things away, He adds. This is taking away 
any theological term that comes to your mind, taking away? Mercy. Adding to us anything that comes to your mind? Grace. So in verse 24, we have this this mercy of God removing the, the passions and desires as a driving force in our lives. And then in verse 25, we have the grace of God being being in, uh, input into our lives as he not only removes sinful passions and desires as our hub, but he then provides the presence of his spirit as our guiding influence. You know, look at what it says. The, the, the person of the Holy Spirit does something. It says in verse 25, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. He starts verse 25 with a first-class conditional sentence. You wanted to hear about a first-class conditional statement. It simply means this. If and we do. If and we do. So, read it this way. If we live and we do by the Spirit. He starts this way. Paul starts by telling us that the Spirit is the one who has given us life. Now, does anyone else tell us that? Yes, the Lord Jesus himself tells us. Take a look, please, at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The Spirit gives life. In John chapter 3, I want us to pick it up in the middle of a a dialogue between the Lord Jesus and Nicodemus that you may be familiar with. And I'll start with uh, a verse that I would assume you've heard before. In John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, and he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and what? the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit do not marvel that i said to you you must be born again the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is what Born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus simplifies this for us simpletons in verse 16. You know verse 16. They have it written on the eye black sometimes, and sometimes they have the signs. It's less and less popular all the time. You can, you can promote anything, just don't talk about Jesus. Uh, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so verse 16 is the, the side of it that helps us to see how it comes to be. However, verses 3 through 8 tell us how it really takes place. The truth of the matter is everyone who ever has come to saving faith in Christ has come because the Spirit has made them alive. That He is the one who gives life. Take a look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Actually, this is on the screen too, so if you have a hard time finding the book of Titus that comes after 2 Timothy, um, you can just look up and it will be there for you. 
In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, God's word says this, speaking of God our Savior in verse 4, verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's new birth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So as we transition from verse 24 of Galatians 5, where God removes from us the controlling power of sin, and we move into verse 25, 24 was the removing of the controlling power of sin, verse 25, this, this gracious gift that God makes us alive by His Spirit, he, he, he does something that's pretty interesting as you head back to Galatians 5. Now, on the screen, you're going to see this construction. I, I, want, I want to try to help you don't get intimidated, but it's a chiastic structure. Happy, yeah, you wanted to learn about chi's. Now, if you've ever even heard the Greek language, you know that a chi looks like an X. Okay? That's a chi. And basically, in, in literature, if you have a chiastic structure, you can just picture one half of that X, where you've got the first point up here, and the last point where my elbow is, and in the middle is where you have the main idea. Okay? Whenever you have a chiasm in literature, the main idea is found in the middle of that structure. And so I want you to see from verse, tw uh, verse 25, it is a chiastic structure. He starts off by saying, if and we do uh, live, if we live and we do by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, that's how it reads in our ESV. But when it comes to the way that it reads in the Greek, it basically says this. There are very few words in verse 25. A lot of what you see in your translation, no matter what translation you have, are words that are supplied by the translator. Essentially, it says, if we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit... Also, let us keep in step. But the let us keep in step is one word. Okay? So there's, there's two words, and then there's two by the spirits. They're, they're side by each. They're, they're back to back. Okay? What he's telling us is, you've been, a ma you've been made alive by the spirit. The spirit is the one that you should keep in step with. Okay? It's very simple. The emphasis of verse 25 is the Spirit. There's a, a statement of fact at the beginning of the verse. You've been made alive by this Spirit. And there's a call at the end of the verse. You ready for another technical term? This will make you happy. It's a hortatory subjunctive. A hortatory subjunctive is a very nice way to make a command. Instead of saying, go to the store and get me some milk, it's, let us go to the store and get some milk. See the difference? One is saying, you go do this, and the other is, let's go do this. Guess what? You're getting the milk. That's, that's the bottom line. So he starts off by making a statement of fact. The Spirit's made us alive. The Spirit is the one by whom we must walk in harmony. Now, he uses a very interesting word, this, this word um, that, that we've got translated, keep in step. And it's, a really, it's actually a pretty good translation to say, keep in step. I always I want to say walk by the Spirit, but that's not it's not doing justice to the word. The, the word is talking about a harmonious relationship. The word is talking about 
about as the Spirit steps, so you step. It says, don't deviate from the Spirit. He made you alive. This Spirit made you alive. As you go forth in life, walk where the Spirit walks. Now, this is not foreign to our understanding. It might be stated a little bit differently here. But I want for us to look at a couple of passages of Scripture to, to kind of make this maybe a little bit more chewable. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, please. So since you have been made alive by the Spirit, you should walk in a harmonious relationship with the Spirit. As you consider Ephesians 4, he talks about walking in a worthy manner in verse 1, and then he goes on and gives us uh, many bits of information. As he gets to the second half of chapter 4, he's telling us not to walk like the Gentiles walk in verses 17 through 19. He tells us in verses 20 and 21, because if you walk in the way that the Gentiles walk, you're not learning what Christ has taught you. He's, he's demonstrated something different. Then in verses 22 through 24, he gives us a pattern to follow the, the way that the Lord Jesus demonstrates, which is this, to put off your old self. Of course, the Lord Jesus didn't have to do that because he was perfect in every way, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's talking about walking in a, a harmonious relationship. Then in verses 25 to 29, he gives us a number of commands. In other words, this is the way he'll display this reality. In verse 25, he tells us not to lie, but to speak the truth. In verse 26, he tells us to be angry without sinning. In other words... If you're going to be angry, be angry when someone is offending God and not when someone is offending your flesh. That's, that's the kind of, the only time that anger is justified is when it is because God's nature is being offended. Every other kind of anger is selfish anger. He's not telling us to be angry when someone offends us. He's telling us to do to, to operate without sin in anger, which means our, our anger re, is related wholly, completely, upon what that person is doing to God's name and nature. Then he moves on to verse 28, tells us not to steal, but to work hard. Verse 29, not to speak corruptly, but to speak in a way that builds up. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Essentially, and he follows this up with talk about bitterness and anger and malice, okay? Essentially, if we're going to live in harmony with the Spirit, it means that we're going to live in harmony with God, what God has revealed. A person cannot say, I am walking with the Spirit, and violate Scripture. Now, you can say it. <laughs> you can say anything you want. Right? We live in a free country with free speech. You can say all kinds of nonsense, whether it be on Facebook, Twitter, whatever other social media is available, or you can go out in the street and march with some mask on somewhere, like some fools do, and, and do that kind of nonsense. This is the world we live in. Just because we say stuff doesn't mean it's right. To say, I walk in harmony with the Spirit, and to violate Scripture is to lie to yourself and to whoever you're telling. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What is he talking about? Well, the, here's the, the Spirit is going to lead you to the truth. The Spirit is going to lead you to walk in harmony with the truth. He's never going to walk, lead you contrary to what God has revealed. If you have visions, means you probably ate too much pepperoni pizza, but if you have visions and that speaks contrary to the word of God, guess what? It's wrong. If you have visions and it speaks in harmony with the word of God, guess what? God already revealed it, so we didn't need your vision. Hmm. Ever think of that one? Nonetheless, the Spirit always leads us toward truth. We walk in harmony with the Spirit as we walk in harmony with the truth. The Bible says this. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Just another way to say it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5, again, he's right in the midst of a grouping of commands. We're not going to reiterate all of them. I'll just reiterate the ones that come right before it. It says, rejoice always, verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is, is, is ministering to you and guiding you toward truth. Don't walk in the other direction. Don't snuff out the influence of the Spirit. Later on in this text, in verse 23, it's God himself who sanctifies us completely. In verse 24, faithful is he who has called you who also will do it. But what is the avenue whereby God does this? The Spirit and the Word. Don't snuff out the influence whereby God will sanctify you. It's very clear. And this is what Paul is getting at back in Galatians chapter 5. How does the Spirit lead us? He leads us in the truth. Romans chapter 8 and verse 4 says this, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be, what? Fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God's Spirit will always lead in accordance with God's revealed truth. What does it look like when the Spirit leads us? That's a good question. I'm glad you were thinking about it. Head back to Galatians chapter 5. What does it look like when the Spirit is leading us? Paul, in our same context, has already answered this question. And we have labored over the last nine services that I have had the privilege of preaching through what it looks like when we walk in harmony with the Spirit. Look please at Galatians 5 and verse 22 and verse 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Why no law? You don't need the law 
if the Spirit is leading you because the Spirit will do the law in you. The things that God has commanded will take place in the life of the one who is walking in a harmonious relationship with the Spirit, and it will look like the character of God. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. So that might leave us with another question. What does it not look like when the Spirit leads? Verse 26 answers that question. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Hmm. What's interesting here is that this is a continuation of what Paul, under the influence of the Spirit, under the inspiration of the Spirit, started at the beginning of the chapter, because the whole chapter is speaking about the same main idea. Before we dive into verse 26, what we're hanging our hat on with this particular element is this third benefit of our relationship with God. The controlling power of the Spirit enables us to truly love one another. The controlling power of the Spirit enables us to truly love one another. Here, in verse 26, it's stated as a prohibition. In other words, since you are alive by the Spirit, allow the Spirit to actively, evidently, crucify your passions and desires in this way, by not becoming conceited. That's a, that's a great word he uses here. It means one who talks big about himself. Folks, I'm going to say this as straightly and lovingly as I, as I can. The one who knows God speaks little of self. Is that not Isaiah's experience in Isaiah 6? I was, uh, when I saw the Lord high in lifted up and his train filled the temple and he saw this glorious vision of God on his throne with the, the angels above the throne and they were saying holy 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 Lord God Almighty which was and is and is to come unless that's the revelation passage but you know you get the idea and then he says I am so great oh that wasn't what he said I have eloquent lips I am holy. That's not what you got when you read Isaiah 6. Listen, I can sing. You hear that? <laughs> no. He said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Because I have seen the Lord high and lift it up. When you know God, it's, if you speak about yourself, it's not in glowing terms. Walking in harmony with the Spirit eliminates speaking well of ourselves. And he, he further defines this, this conceit, and, and he broadens it because the way he constructs it, let us not be conceited, and then 
he gives two participles, which are hangers on to this concept of conceited. He defines it further. He broadens it out by saying, not provoking one another, that means to produce irritation toward one another, and not envying one another, desiring what someone else has or is. Conceit is not just simply talking well of oneself. It's also that, that willingness to get under someone else's skin and that tendency, that natural tendency that we have in our flesh of not liking it when someone else becomes more prominent than we, than we are or someone has something more than we have or something better than we have. Why couldn't that have been mine? How come this? Uh, it's not... It's not fair. You know, you know the, those things. And we, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't have it hanging out there quite that much because we are sanctified, and I use that term incorrectly in this point. We are sanctified in our moral behavior. We wouldn't say these things out loud. But you know what? You don't have to say it for it to be true. Conceit comes across in, in so many ways. And you know what, what's going on here? Paul has not left the subject matter with which he started the chapter. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5, Galatians 5.1. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look down at verse 6 now. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through what? A faith that results in love. In, you, have, you and I have not been set free so we can live our lives at our own discretion to do what we feel like. We've been saved. We've been set free to love. To love. Look at verse 13. He, he reiterates this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then he, go, and he, and he embodies it a little bit more. He, he widens it out. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. He's telling us about our natural tendency to, to envy, to become conceited, to provoke one another. And he transitions from telling us, hey, you've been set free to love and, 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 and God didn't set you free so you can do whatever you feel like, but, but so you can love one another. And love is the fulfillment of the law. Guess what? When you walk in the power of the Spirit, you fulfill the law. And the very first fruit of the Spirit is love. Thank you. Leave me hanging there. Love. The very first fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he goes on and he talks about, about all these demonstrations of God's character from, from love right through self-control. And then he says, your old way, your passions and, and your, your flesh, your, your desires for my way, for the things that make me look good, for the things that I want to feast upon to feed my own flesh. They've been crucified. You belong to Christ. The Spirit has made you alive. It's a new life. If you've been made alive and you have, walk in step in harmony with the Spirit. When you walk in harmony with the Spirit, you will not be conceited. You will not be provoking one another. You will not be envying one another. The whole chapter is saying the same thing. It took us 
it took us, what, three months to get through this? And he's just saying the same thing over and over in different ways. You know, folks, the Bible tells us we're going to struggle with one another. It's true of our Christian home, and it's true of our Christian church. You know, here you are, you're a single guy or a single girl, responsible for yourself. Here you are, you deal with your own sin, it, it can discourage you, and then you realize the redeeming love of God, and so you can be encouraged again, and you have this thing, and then you get, uh, you say, I do. It's beautiful, I love it. I'm so, uh, 20 years, you are absolutely the best for having dealt with me and put up with me for 20 years. I love you. But you take one sinner, and you add a sinner to the mix, and you think, this is going to be great! No, you just multiplied sin. And then you think, oh, isn't it so great? We're going to have kids. Sin. More kids. More sin. More kids. More sin. More kids. More sin. More kids. More sin. What are you doing? Sin all around. There's seven of us in one house. There's like, you can't get away from it. And you're smiling. And you came to church. And guess what? There are 200 of us, 150 of us, whatever. All these sinners in one place. And you think, oh, this is going to be great. Yeah, it is great. I love coming to church. I love my family. Don't, don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm being playful, hopefully making a point and being playful. I love my kids. I love my wife. Still the point's true. Um, we come in here. I love being here. I love being with you. I, I, I love to see your faces. And, and I love, I love to, to, to share your burdens with you. I, I love this. This is, this is what we're here for. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In Ephesians chapter 4, God told us that we were going to have to endeavor. What that word means? Intense labor. Endeavor to keep the unity that belongs to the Spirit, God's harmony. In the bond of peace. He told us in the verses before that it's going to require lowliness and meekness. It's going to require long-suffering, bearing with one another in love because people are sinners and things get hard and someone's going to offend you. They're going to walk by you without saying hi. They're going to say the wrong thing to you. They're going to, they're going to say the wrong thing to your kid. I've offended people by saying stuff to their kids. I didn't, I didn't mean to. Like I don't, I don't, I don't want to offend people. That's not ever my, it's not ever my plan. But I, I've offended families by by correcting their children. You know, these these things are going to happen. We're going we're going to offend one another. What is the way to deal with it? How do we deal with it when we offend one another? The Bible tells us to humble ourselves. And really, if we walk in harmony with the Spirit, we have our solution already. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, as much, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with, come on, there you go, all men, you know it. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that we are to be um, growing in our love. Take a look at Philippians 1, beginning in verse 9, it's, it's part of his prayer for the church. In Philippians 1.9, the Bible says this, and it is my prayer that your love may what? Abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
if our love is not, if, if God's love is not being evidenced in us in a, in a more frequent and more frequent endurance or, or occurrence, when, then how can we say that verse 10 is taking place? Because it says, so that if our love isn't abounding in knowledge and discernment, our, our, we're not approving what is excellent. And so we're, we're not demonstrating the purity and blamelessness that are ours. And it says in verse 11, here's the key, how it's going to take place filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes how? Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it tells us the same thing. It tells us that, that, our, that we've been taught by God to love one another, only abound more and more in it. Right? This is, this is a, an ongoing thing. God's telling us all the time. And so we, we face difficulty. Someone, maybe you're not the, one, the, the producer of irritation. Maybe you're not the producer of conceit. Maybe you're not the producer of envy. Maybe someone else is doing that. What, what is our job then? Well, Solomon had something to say to us. A soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. Paul had something to say to us. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Paul had something else to say, and I want us to look at this one. Colossians, please, chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul says this, Let your speech always be gracious. That means filled with grace. When you think of grace, you think of God's empowerment. Let your words be spirit-filled. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The context is going forth outside with the gospel, that a door of utterance may be given to us, and then in verse 4, that, it may be made, that, that I may make it clear what I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making best use of the time. When you start to talk about people that are outside, how do they like the gospel message? Sometimes not so much. And so he says, when your presentation of the gospel that God opens a door for is rebutted, make sure that your speech is gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each one. Because they're not happy with you, and you want... For God to be on display in the midst of this rebuke. Well, how does that not apply then in the local church and in your home when someone is at odds with you? Rather than an immediate, yeah, well, you said this, and so I said this, and and this, this pooping all over the place. That's what it happens. It happens in our homes. It happens in the church. It happens at work. You've, it's, it's all over the place. It's, it's verbal vomit. And we, we stand pounding our chest. I have a right to say this. They said such and such. There's a lot of noises going on here today. This is fun. <laughs> so, but the call here is to allow the Spirit to do what you could never do. When someone assaults you with words, in your house, in the church, at work, wherever. God's 
available grace is there. And you and I, we have no, no excuse. Not even one. As you get to the second half of chapter 5, Paul is not telling the Galatians, um, not just telling them how to live out their freedom. He's telling them how it, how it works. Our freedom, listen carefully, our freedom is not lived out in isolation from God and others. Our freedom is lived out in joyful submission to God through the Holy Spirit. Walking in harmony with the Spirit results in displaying God's character. You see it in verses 22 and 23. And in a life of loving consideration to one another. Verses 24 through 26. Harmony with God through the Spirit will result will result in harmony with others. James said, why are there wars? Why are there contentions among you? Ah, it's because you are at war within yourself. You are at war with someone? Start with the war inside of you. That's the place that the battle is won. Then, after dealing with the battle within you, then you can address the battle without. Let's pray together. Father, we know these things are, are real. Uh, we face these challenges in so many contexts in our lives. We know that you've won the battle already, and we know that the Spirit who, who has given us life can bring to pass not only making us alive, but causing us to walk in harmony with the truths of your word. Father, we pray that you would enable us by your spirit to make what is true in our position, that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, that you would make it true in our daily experience, that rather than catering to our flesh in what we want, we would yield ourselves in joyful submission to you, displaying you and loving others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.